In the fall of 1863, President Lincoln issued two landmark statements. The first one was the famous Gettysburg Address in which Lincoln commemorated the battlefield of Gettysburg. Most people should remember the beginning words to that address. Lincoln said four score and seven years ago. That number, four score and seven, or 87, describes the time that had passed since the earlier signing of the Declaration of Independence. The other momentous statement from Lincoln was made just the previous month. On October 3rd, 1863, President Lincoln instituted the first official Thanksgiving holiday. No matter what some secular progressive Marxist professor might teach in his godless classroom, Thanksgiving coming at the end of fall is not a time set aside to honor Mother Earth. It is not a time to celebrate the continuation of life. Our founding fathers, and then Mr. Lincoln himself, encouraged celebrating Thanksgiving in order to give thanks unto God, who has blessed us above measure and who is responsible for everything good we have. Then remember that Lincoln's proclamation was made during the Civil War. There were 1.5 million military casualties from that horrific war. Compare that number to the 407,000 U.S. military casualties from World War II. The Civil War was the bloodiest contest we have ever had. It was during the worst war this nation has ever faced that Mr. Lincoln said, quote, It has seemed to me fit and proper that the gracious gifts of the Most High God should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. Lincoln set apart the last Thursday of November as, quote, a day of thanksgiving and praise to our benevolent Father. Now, don't misunderstand. Lincoln hadn't forgotten about the Civil War. And he addressed the horrors of that conflict in his proclamation. He mentioned it as the war of unequaled magnitude and severity that had transformed tens of thousands of Americans into, quote, widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable, lamentable civil strife. So even considering the difficulties and suffering this nation faced at that time, Lincoln still felt it was most appropriate to be grateful. Lincoln understood something that most people never understand, and that is it is never, never inappropriate and an inappropriate time to be grateful. Ephesians 5.20, Paul said, giving thanks, how often? Always. Not sometimes, always giving thanks for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, being grateful for all things means that in all things we can be grateful. Let me repeat that. Being grateful for all things means that in all things we can be grateful. Paul said as much in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18. In Everything, notice, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
We aren't expected to be grateful for things like sin and sickness and disease and disasters. But even in those things, we can still find something to be grateful for. In a more benign sense, that reminds me of a a boy named Johnny, probably a third grader, who said to his school teacher, Teacher, I am so glad I have my glasses. His teacher responded, Johnny, I don't understand. You were so upset you had to wear glasses. You complained about having to wear glasses, but now you seem grateful. I don't understand. Johnny said, Yes, at first, I was upset about having to wear glasses, but then I found out my glasses kept guys from hitting me and kept girls from kissing on me. So I'm thankful I have glasses. The point is we can find something to be thankful for in literally everything. But not all people appreciate the Thanksgiving holiday. Some Native Americans actually hate the annual festival because it causes them to remember the terrible injustices their ancestors experienced in the past. Some of them observe another day called National Day of Mourning, also called Unthanksgiving Day. That practice started in 1970. I cannot in good conscience for one second justify the near genocide of the indigenous Indian population caused by the descendants of white European immigrants. I cannot do that. It, is, it was more than wrong, and not unlike the slave trade, it was a gross evil that we perpetuated on these people. But God said to be grateful in all things. So can't someone... Can't someone in that indigenous population be grateful to God that those atrocities have ended? I would think so. Since we are instructed to give thanks for all things and in all things, and since all things happen at all times, there is never an inappropriate time to be grateful. A classic case of that was Jonah. Remember, Jonah had been instructed to go to Nineveh and tell the Ninevites that God was about to judge them unless the people repented. Instead of doing as God had said, Jonah boarded a ship headed in the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. In order to get his attention, Jonah was tossed overboard and an enormous fish swallowed him. Some believe it was a large whale shark or some now extinct marine reptile, but no one knows. Jonah 2, verse 9, finds Jonah, the absentee prophet, sitting waist deep in seaweed in the stomach of that huge fish. And he made the statement, quote, but I will sacrifice to you, God, with a voice of thanksgiving. My contention is if Jonah can sit there up to his ears in fish intestines and digestive juices and still be grateful, then we don't have an excuse not to be grateful. Someone said thinking precedes thinking. Don't forget that. Thinking precedes thinking. The reason we aren't more thankful than we are is because we don't think more than we do. Johnson Oatman, born 1856, died 1922. 
composed the lyrics to more than 5,000 hymns and gospel songs. Imagine that. A prolific songwriter. Probably his most famous hymn is called Count Your Many Blessings, and we've sung that here. The lyrics read, When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. If we were to take a single piece of paper and divide it into two columns, On the left side, write a heading at the top that reads, Bummers. And in the opposite column, on the right side, write the heading, Blessings. So, uh, we have two columns on this piece of paper. The columns are labeled, Bummers, and then Blessings. We all are recipients of Bummers. And some people have had incredible, gut-wrenching, tragic, and sad things happen to them. Things that apart from God are impossible to recover from. And I get that. And I hurt for them. But if we are sincere, if we are thoroughly introspective, we would all see that we all have more blessings than bummers. It's just that so often we take those blessings for granted. The first thing I do in the morning before getting out of bed, and getting out of bed is a process, the first thing I do is to thank God for giving me an opportunity to start another day. Some people don't have that opportunity. Although I admit starting my day in heaven would be a very, very good thing. Hopi and I have another reason to be grateful this morning. Um, About 6 p.m. last night, I received a call from our daughter-in-law, Angie, in the Bay Area. Angie's married to our son, Josh. Josh is a journeyman electrician there. Um, Josh and Angie are parents to two of our grandchildren, Caleb, a senior in high school, and Abigail, a freshman in high school. And as soon as I answered the phone, I knew something was wrong because she could, it was like she could hardly breathe. She could hardly talk. And, and it took some time. And I'm, I'm waiting because I knew something had happened. And finally, she said um, that our middle son had fell, fallen off the roof of his house. And uh, he fell first, head first onto concrete. And uh, she said, at first, I, th- I thought he was dead. I, I didn't know. And uh, somehow he managed to protect his face and arm and head using his arms and hands to break his fall. She called 911. The paramedics came. He was put on a gurney. He was rushed to the hospital, to ER. Uh, he had numerous injuries. Uh, some will require surgery. In addition to the worst pain he said he has ever experienced. In fact, the last text I received about midnight, she said he was in excruciating pain. And the opiates, the, the drugs weren't even touching it. And so I'm concerned how he feels this morning. He landed on his feet, but most of his weight was on his right side. So he literally landed on the concrete and crushed his right heel. Um, He has broken bones in his foot. The doctor said he'd never seen that except for one man who I don't know why, jumped out of a second story window and landed on his feet. And that's sort of the injury. So that'll have to be surgically repaired. And and then he, he, after landing, he pitched forward and wanting to break his fall with his hands so he wouldn't injure his head. Uh, He did so, but the weight was on the right. So he broke his right wrist. We don't know how extensive that will require surgery. And then he did a forward roll and landed on his back. 
Uh, but the fact he didn't suffer severe neck and head injuries that would have left him in a coma or a quadriplegic or a vegetable or dead, the fact that didn't happen is a huge blessing. And we are most thankful to God for that. Psalm 104, 100 verse 4 describes our attitude. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise and be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. And when we think about what could have happened to our son and what didn't happen to our son, and though the recovery will be difficult, we are most grateful because God is, is good. This morning, let's investigate someone that didn't take God's goodness for granted. This narrative we're about to read happened during Passion Week. This is from Luke 17. Jesus was en route to Jerusalem where he was scheduled to die. Verse 11, Luke 17. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Verse 12. Then as he entered a certain village, this was an unnamed village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. This disease called leprosy is often misunderstood. In both Old and New Testaments, leprosy was a generic word that described a number of skin conditions. The most severe of those was what we now call Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease is leprosy. A Norwegian physician named Dr. Gerhard Hansen, born 1841, died 1912. Dr. Hansen identified something in the cells taken from leprosy lesions that were bacillus, uh, which proved conclusively leprosy was contagious and not hereditary. This disease has been mentioned in ancient writings from the Middle East, China, India, and Egypt dating back to 600 BC. Leprosy forms lesions on the skin and can disfigure the face by collapsing the nose and causing folding of the skin. Some call it the lion's disease because it sometimes results in the lion-like appearance of the face. The tissue between the bones in the hands and feet deteriorate and disappear, causing them to become deformed and unusable. And due to the loss of feeling, there's numbness, people wear off their extremities without even knowing it. The disease causes horrible disfigurement, and in addition, it affects the internal organs. I was intending to show some pictures of modern victims of Hansen's disease, but after going on to Google Images and seeing those pictures, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. It's a tragic and sad disease. Ancient lepers were considered social outcasts and were cut off from all societal connections. This disease was considered extremely contagious, so lepers were forced to exist in colonies outside villages and cities. There was also a social stigma attached to the lepers. That's because traditional Jewish belief was that disease and suffering resulted from divine judgment. So people have the idea that if a leper had committed some grievous sin and that this disease he had was punishment on his sin. That wasn't true, but that was public opinion among the Jewish people. 
These lepers here in verse in, in Luke 17 stood back from the road because lepers were forbidden to come within six feet of a normal healthy person. Lepers stood back and shouted unclean, unclean, uh, signaling don't come near us. The disease was considered extremely contagious. As an example, one rabbi refused to eat an egg bought on a street where a leper had been. That's an extreme example, but people were paranoid, frightened of this disease. We aren't actually certain how the disease is spread to others, but in biblical times, lepers were isolated not just because of possible infection, but because lepers were considered, in a religious sense, were considered unclean, ceremonially unclean. That disease caused someone to be considered defiled, so that whatever a leper touched was considered contaminated. So lepers were a pathetic group of societal outcasts that existed in abject poverty. Notice verse 13. And they, these ten diseased men, lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us was a common expression. People used to solicit compassion and healing from Jesus. It would get his attention. And so the people wanted him to see them and to heal them of whatever ailment it was. This disease, leprosy, was incurable and fatal, and these people, lepers, were forced to survive a miserable existence. These ten men were desperate. These men understood that outside of Jesus there was no hope. So these men begged the great healer to heal them. It's interesting how that rejected and hurting people that were considered outsiders were so attracted to Jesus. In his book called What's So Amazing About Grace, author Philip Yancey shared a sad and tragic account of a prostitute that came to a friend of his. She was homeless and destitute and unable to even afford food for herself and her preschool daughter. Because she was desperate, this mother did the unthinkable. In fact, it's even sickening to consider this concept. She pimped out her daughter to evil men for an hour at a time. She claimed she had to do that in order to support her drug habit. Mr. Yancey's friend was extremely upset and concerned once he heard that, and he suggested that she come to the church for help. After that suggestion, a shock crossed her face, and she screamed, Church! Church, why would I go there? I already feel terrible about myself. Those people would just make me feel worse. In some cases, I'm afraid that would be true. It seems that those societal outcasts and rejects that were so attracted to Jesus then, now no longer feel welcomed by those of us that claim to follow Jesus. Sometimes we should ask ourselves, are hurting, broken sinful and rejected people attracted to us as individual Christians? Are those people, in a collective sense, attracted to our church? The church was never designed to be a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. And as a spiritual hospital, outsiders and outcasts should feel welcome here. 
and wanted here and find forgiveness here and healing here and a purpose for their existence. Notice Luke 5, verse 30, and their scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus' disciples were socializing with societal outcasts, socializing with notorious sinners. The disciples didn't join them in committing sin, but those men did eat with them. And according to the religious elites, that was unacceptable. Verse 31, Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And sometimes we act as though sinners are the enemy. We want to avoid them. Something Jesus would never have done. Verse 14, so when he, Jesus, saw them, Jesus saw the lepers, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priest. The Jewish priest in the temple were the ones that would evaluate them to determine if these men had actually been healed. The priests were the only ones that could declare someone clean from a disease so that this person could re-enter society. And that examination was an elaborate process over eight days to determine if someone had been healed from this terrible disease of leprosy. And then notice the second half of verse 14. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. Notice that as they went, they were cleansed. It's interesting. Jesus didn't heal these men on the spot. He didn't heal these men moments after meeting them. Instead, Jesus commanded them to go see the priest. Probably he did that because he wanted to test their faith and his abilities to heal them. And it seems that all ten men did exercise faith and did as Jesus told them to do. And then as these men were en route to see the priest, as these men left Jesus and were going to see those priests, all of them were healed at some point between Jesus and the Jerusalem temple where the priests were, those lepers, all of them were completely healed of that disease. There was this instantaneous and complete cleansing of all traces of this disease that had infected and disfigured their bodies. Verse 15, and one of them, one of these healed lepers, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. Verse 16, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Please notice that this healed leper did three important things in returning to Jesus. One, he glorified God in a loud voice. This is from verse 15 we just read. He glorified God in a loud voice. A loud voice meant he was emotional in his response to Jesus. It would have been impossible to not have been emotional. Even the most stoic person, one that almost never shows emotion, would have been emotional. 
This man had been healed of an incurable disease. He was scheduled to die from this disease. And then after meeting Jesus and doing as Jesus said to do, in an instant, that all changed. Someone suggested that this might have been the first time in a long time that this man had been able to speak in a loud voice as, some, as leprosy sometimes affects the larynx and the voice. Second, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. This is from verse 16. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, meaning he fell to the ground, his face to the ground at Jesus' feet. That was an act of worship. And falling on his face at Jesus' feet was an affirmation that Jesus deserved to be worshipped since Jesus was God. The Hebrew Old Testament was emphatic that only God was to be worshipped. So in worshiping Jesus, in falling to the ground, face to the ground, at his feet, this leper's actions demonstrated that he believed that Jesus was God. Third, he gave thanks to Jesus. This is also from verse 16. He gave thanks to Jesus. To be fair, to be fair, it is theoretically possible that the other nine lepers that were healed en route to see the priest it is possible those men intended to worship God in the Jerusalem temple after the priest had cleared them to do that. That's possible. We don't know that. But that is possible. But this leper that returned couldn't wait to be grateful. He didn't want to wait until he got to see the priest. As soon as he realized he had been healed, and that would have been immediately apparent to him, he would have understood that instantly, all that the disease had caused to his body would have been reversed. As soon as he understood he had he been healed, he returned to the one who healed him. Jesus and Jesus alone was the source of his healing. So he returned to thank him. Even though there were ten lepers in this narrative, notice the main characters were Jesus and this one leper that returned. Just those two men. Verse 17 so Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? This is a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question asked in order to produce an effect. A question asked in order to make a statement instead of soliciting information. The answer to a rhetorical question is always obvious. Altogether, Jesus asked three rhetorical questions of this leper. Question one, weren't there ten lepers healed from this disease? It probably sounded more like there were ten men healed, weren't there? The answer is yes, there were. Ten of them were healed. Question two, where are the other nine that were healed? Where are the other nine that were healed? Jesus said there were ten men healed, and this one has returned, so where are the other nine? Verse 18, notice, Jesus said, Were there not found any, not any found, who returned to give glory to God, except this foreigner? Question three, wasn't there at least one of the other nine that returned? The answer was no. No, none of the other nine men returned to thank him. 
Now notice Jesus called this man that returned a foreigner. That meant that this man was not one of the Jewish people. According to verse 16, he was a Samaritan. So he was a stranger to Judaism. In the first century AD, Jews and Samaritans were divided because of both racial and religious prejudice. Jewish people and Samaritans hated one another because the Samaritans were the result of intermarriages between Jewish people and ancient Gentile Assyrians. So that was a racial prejudice. Then the Jewish people perceived the Samaritan religion as a perversion of Judaism because Samaritans accepted the Pentateuch the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, but Samaritans rejected the rest of the Hebrew Old Testament. So that was the religious prejudice. On a normal basis, Jews and Samaritans would never, never interact. But the reason this Samaritan man was part of this contingency of lepers that were Jewish is because those Jewish men, being lepers, were themselves societal outcasts. And as societal rejects, these men could care less about hanging out with another societal outcast, such as the Samaritan. It didn't matter to them at this juncture. But even though this man wasn't Jewish, he still returned to be grateful. Verse 19, And he, Jesus, said to him, this healed leper, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Remember, he's been on the ground in worship to Jesus. So Jesus said, get up and go on. Your faith has made you well. Putting faith in something means to trust in something, to put our confidence in something, to put our reliance in something. This leper had exercised faith in Jesus and his instructions to him, He trusted that Jesus understood how to cure his disease. And he didn't argue, no, 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 no. Jesus, I'm not leaving here until I'm healed. No, that didn't happen. He instantly did as Jesus told him to do. He acted in absolute obedience to Jesus' instructions. The moment after he left Jesus, he was still in a diseased state. And then at some point, en route to see the priest, he was cured. And that cure would have been instantaneous and restorative, meaning any disfiguration or missing appendages would have been restored to normality. In addition to that, this man exercised salvific faith. The phrase, made your well, your faith has made you well, from verse 19, is translated from a Greek word that is the common word used in the New Testament that describes being saved from sin. So this man exercised faith for his healing and faith, salvific faith, for his salvation. So essentially this man received two miracles from Jesus. One miracle was the cure to his disease, and that happened en route to see the priest. And the second miracle happened upon returning to Jesus. That was a cure to his sin through salvation. Remember, it is never inappropriate to be grateful to both God and man. President James Madison was our fourth president and is considered the father of the Constitution. 
He was, as all of our founding fathers were, he was a flawed man. He was a slave owner. Um, and that is a despicable practice. And so grateful that is part of our past and not our present. But President James Madison, it is said, was one to manifest gratefulness. In his old age, the former president suffered from a number of illnesses. So he took a number of different medicines in response to those ailments and illnesses. Once an old friend on one occasion sent him a box of pills of his own production, meaning this friend had made those pills himself. Now, we would say no, but not then. People could be trusted. And his friend begged him, uh, begged the president to be, he wanted to be informed if they did or didn't help him. After some time, Mr. Madison sent his friend a note. It said, My dear friend, I thank you. I thank you very much for the box of pills you sent me. I've taken them all. And while I cannot say that I am better since taking them, it is quite possible that I might have been worse if I had not taken them. So I beg you to acknowledge my sincere acknowledgments and thankfulness. This message is applicable to all of us. There's, there's no one in this room that is as grateful as he or she ought to be. No one, including me. I might be guilty, guilty of ungratefulness more than most. Thankfulness is a choice. In one of the books from the Chicken Soup series, Francis Swartz describes a man named Jerry who was in a good mood all the time. And he always had something positive to say to people. If asked how he was doing, he would respond, If I was any better, I'd be twins. Jerry was a restaurant manager, and people loved to work for him because he was such a positive person. He was optimistic and encouraging and upbeat. Someone said, Jerry, I don't get it. How can you be so upbeat and positive all the time? Jerry said, Each morning I wake up and tell myself that I have two choices today. I can choose either to be in a good mood or I can choose to be in a bad mood. And I choose to be in a good mood. Jerry said, life is all about choices. Some time ago, Jerry's restaurant was robbed. The thieves panicked and shot him. And he was rushed to the emergency room. He spent 18 hours on the operating table. His injuries were that severe. And then spent almost a month in intensive care. But he survived. Someone asked him how he did it. He said, when I was on the floor after being shot, I remembered I had two choices. I could choose to live or I could choose to die. So I chose to live. The paramedics were encouraging. But once I was wheeled into the emergency room and I saw the looks on the faces of the doctors and nurses, I got really scared. Their eyes said, he's a dead man. And I knew I needed to take action. And there was a big, blurly, burly nurse shouting questions at me. And she asked, are you allergic to anything? I said, yes, I am. 
And the doctors and nurses stopped momentarily and waited for my response. I answered, I'm allergic to bullets. (laughs) And over their laughter I yelled, I'm choosing to live, so operate on me as I am alive and not dead. And Jerry lived, thanks to the skill of that medical team, thanks to his attitude, and most of all, thanks to the grace of God. Francis Swartz said, I saw Jerry six months after that that incident and asked him how he was doing, and he responded, if I was any better, I'd be twins. One of the lessons I have struggled to learn This is confession time. One of the lessons I have struggled and struggled to learn is that so much of life is determined not by our circumstances, but by our choices. So much of life is determined not by our circumstances, but by our choices. From a theoretical perspective, I understand that. I fully understand that, but I struggle practicing that. I don't at all times have the attitude Jerry had toward his circumstances. People, it matters how we choose. We can choose to complain and lament our unfortunate situation, or we can choose to be grateful no matter what. Question, do we have an attitude of gratitude? Jesus healed 10 diseased men. All 10 men exercised faith in his instructions. All ten men did as he told them to do. All ten men trusted him. And true to his intention, Jesus healed all ten men. But then just one of them returned to thank him. Question, where do we fit into that equation? And I said we because I'm also a part of this. Where do we fit into this narrative? Are we one of those nine that didn't return? Or are we representative of the one who did return? In a matter of moments, we're, we are commemorating communion. Most evangelical Christians, as we are, most evangelicals call communion, communion. Or the Lord's table, or the Lord's supper, or the last supper, or the breaking of bread. But other churches call communion the Eucharist. Anglicans, Catholics, different Orthodox churches, Presbyterians, Lutherans, and others use the word Eucharist to describe communion. Why would that be? Luke 22, verse 19, just hours before Jesus was arrested, Jesus and his disciples were in a large upstairs room in Jerusalem celebrating Passover eating the Passover meal. And at that Passover meal, where Jesus instituted communion, it reads, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them. The Greek word translated in this verse as thanks, he gave thanks, is the word Eucharistia. From that word, we get the word Eucharist. And that word Eucharistia means to be grateful. To be grateful. That word Eucharistia could also be translated as thanksgiving. And that's the essence of communion. 
Through the means of communion, through sitting at this table, through partaking of the elements, we are being thankful for Christ's death for our sins. In sharing at the Lord's table, we are demonstrating our gratefulness for the sacrifices Jesus made on the cross for us. That's the reason some call communion the Eucharist, because that word describes communion. It is a time of corporate gratefulness to God for the sacrifice of His Son. And that's one reason we choose to have communion on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, um, I can't address this subject with a great deal of experience because I'm certain I am more ungrateful than I am grateful. And I confess that. I apologize for that. And I pray you would help me to change that pattern. All of us should be more grateful than we are. We just don't stop and think about how much, so much, we have to be thankful for. So Father, I just pray that this message will have an impact on our thinking and then in our behavior as we leave this place this morning. Please now prepare our hearts for a very sacred time, for a reverent time, for a solemn time as we prepare to sit at the table of the Lord and share in communion together. So I pray, God, that you will bless us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.